fine Galatians. I trust you have uh, some well-worn pages in that section of your Bible now. And we're looking tonight at the subject matter, Operation Blessing. Operation Blessing. Galatians, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 26 of chapter 5. And we'll go down through verse 6 of chapter 6. Galatians 5, verse 26, through chapter 6, and verse 6. Got it? Let's actually back up verse 24 of chapter 5. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. You know, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, listen to what Paul says there in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, If, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of of others, certainly powerful words about what our attitude to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord is to be. And then, of course, in verse 5 of Philippians 2, he begins giving the preeminent, preeminent example of all of someone who looked after the needs of others. And that would be Christ. And so he says there, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So we see some very similar words there about watching over one another and helping one another. Now, as we get into this section of Galatians, we see that Paul is now talking about relationships. He closed chapter 5 by contrasting the deeds of the flesh to the deeds of the Spirit. And he admonished believers, obviously, to walk in the Spirit. And if we will walk in the Spirit, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Now, it may surprise some, as one commentator says, to find that in chapter 6, Paul returns to something so practical and down-to-earth as relationships, helping our brothers in Christ and handling money. He goes on to write, but this is precisely what is needed. People need to understand that walking in the Spirit is not, is not all up in the clouds or philosophical. Walking in the Spirit involves right handling of day-to-day -day earthly matters as well. And so we need to understand walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, is not just some kind of emotional high that he's been talking about. It has very real application in day-to-day -day living. The presence of God's Holy Spirit in our lives is to be demonstrated by concrete actions in our lives that reflect God's holiness and His character, His power, and His transformation. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is being so practical but because this is usually Paul's approach in his letters. In the first section of his letters, he will be highly doctrinal. And then in the last part of his letters, before he closes out, he shows how that theology is to be lived out. How it's to be applied. Really, any letter by the Apostle Paul you read, he follows this same approach. You know, you could talk about Ephesians 4, one of the most theological books in the New Testament. And uh, he's talking there about how uh, God's broken down the walls between people and how we're redeemed in Christ. And, and then he closes out by saying, let us walk worthy of the calling that we have. And he illustrates what that's going to be like. And then in Romans 12, after all of that rich theology in chapters 1 through 11, he begins to close out by saying, therefore, uh, having, having these blessings and based on the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And then he goes into a discussion about spiritual gifts. So again, a very practical section that follows a doctrinal section. And that's what he's doing tonight. That's what he's doing in, in the book of Galatians that we look at tonight. And again, we learn in these verses that a Christian faith that doesn't find practical application in how we relate to others and the world is really not a faith worth having. Now, we might think this is obvious, but I, I assure you it's not obvious to everybody. When I was in high school and college working uh, with one of the local grocery store chains in the back room, there was, a, there was a gentleman in the back room who was convinced it absolutely did not matter how he lived his life from day to day as long as he would go to his church on the weekend and go into the confessional booth for a time of confession, it didn't matter how he lived. He could live the, leave the confessional booth and go right back out to a life of disobedience and he didn't see a connection between the two. So let's don't assume everybody understands that theology is to result in lifestyle change. Well, I want you to see, first of all tonight, if you're taking notes, the key to victorious living. The key to victorious living. In verse 24, he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, the verb crucified there functions as a clue for interpreting this whole verse. And it probably points back to chapter 2 and verse 20. Look at what Paul said back there, verse 20 of chapter 2. He said, uh, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now for the believer, when did the crucifixion of the flesh occur? At conversion. When the believer died with Christ. That's what we celebrate in baptism too, right? As a person is being lowered down, signifying they've died with Christ. But just as Christ has been raised from the dead, we too shall be raised from the dead. But just because we've crucified the flesh, does this mean that the battle is over in our lives? <laughs> no way. We live in this age, only now we're also ready for the age to come. But still, we live in this age. We live in the interim, before the age to come. And true, the passions of the flesh do not rule and dominate as they once did, but they're still present. The key is now, though, they don't have control over us. They don't reign over us, the desires of the flesh. We have a new power in us that we did not have before. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Thomas Schreiner says about this. He's one of our Southern Baptist theologians and, and commentators. He says, still believers live in the interval between the already and the not yet. Desires for sin are not absent. And sometimes such desires are incredibly strong. They are so intense that warfare between the flesh and the spirit takes place in believers. Such conflict in the lives of believers is reflected elsewhere in Paul's letters. Therefore, the Christian life uh, it is not an ethereal existence in which the conflicts of this world are left behind. Believers do not float into a new uh, sphere that cuts them off from the pressures and desires of the present evil age. Desires for evil still afflict us and bedevil us. It is far too simplistic then to say that believers must simply let go and let God or to promise that the fight against sin will vanish in this life if a certain formula for spiritual victory is applied. The war against the world, the flesh, and the devil continues until the day of death. He goes on to say the opposition between the flesh and the spirit is the normal Christian life, which is not, not marked by perfection, but by diligent warfare. Those are words we need to remember. Just because we've crucified the flesh and we're in Christ doesn't mean that the battle against the flesh is over. I'm sure you've learned that. 
you've learned that all too well. Well, as Paul looks at redeemed humanity, uh, this, is the this is the reality that he acknowledges. But there's also an optimism that he acknowledges in the case of the Christian. Because again, he affirms that we have a new power living within us. We don't live the Christian life in our own strength. It's important to point out Paul is not saying that it's a matter where we just need to try harder ourselves. Again, through this whole section, he's been emphasizing that what we need to do is walk in the power of the Spirit. That's the key. That we abide in Christ and walk in the power of the Spirit. And as he points out in verse 25, we must continue to walk in tune with the Spirit. In other words, life in the Spirit doesn't have an Auto, autopilot button. Just as we've begun in the Spirit, we need to continue in the Spirit. And that's the key to victorious Christian living. Well, secondly, I want you to see how not to relate to others. How not to relate to others. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We're not to be conceited. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, should we do that, Paul mentions two things that are very likely to happen. Number one, we're going to provoke one another. If we think too highly of ourselves, we're going to end up provoking one another. The word provoke in the Greek language that is used here means to challenge somebody to a contest. It implies that we are so confident in our superiority over them that we want to show it off. We want to challenge them and we want to try to demonstrate that we are better than them. And what's that going to end up doing? Hurting relationships. And that's certainly not the way of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about the way of love, that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant. Now, on the other hand, if somehow we, we don't think that we measure up ourselves, then what are, what's our attitude towards others around us going to be? We're going to envy others, right? We're going to be jealous of them. And if we envy others and we're jealous of them, what's that going to end up doing? Once again, that's going to end up tending to cause division and fights. And so we're not to think too little of ourselves and others, just as we're not to think too highly of ourselves or others. Then how are we supposed to think of others? We're to think biblically, right? Each person is created in the image of God. And has dignity and value and worth because of that. Every person that we meet is somebody created in the image of God. And, and deserves respect because of that. 
We all have our differences. We all have our weaknesses. We also all have our strengths, right? And that's the beauty of the human race. We're created to be a community, in community with one another. God didn't design us to live as lone rangers. He didn't design us to live apart from one another. We're designed as the human race to live in community. We need each other. And nowhere is this uh, seen more readily than church life itself. We need each other. We need each other's gifts and contributions to the body of Christ. And so there's to be a contentment with who God has made us to be and with who he has made others to be. There's to be contentment and respect and acceptance. And then if all of those things are in place, pride and envy and jealousy and arrogance are going to be removed from the picture. And it's in that context that we can walk in the Spirit displaying the fruit of the Spirit toward one another. Now, thirdly, after showing us how not to relate to others, he shows us in the first five verses of chapter 6 how to relate to others. He begins by saying, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Now, in verse 1, the situation spoken of here truly reveals what the spiritual maturity of a person is. You know, some people love to point out other people's sins and faults, right? They want to put the sins and faults of others on display. Why do you think people do that sometimes? Cover up their own. Cover up their own. Maybe to make themselves look better. Others go to the other extreme. They choose to simply ignore the sin of others who were in their lives. Now, Paul shows here, though, that the Spirit-led individual walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, is not going to choose either one of those paths. We're not going to be eager to point out the sins of others and put them on display, and neither are we simply to overlook sin. He then tells what the spirit-led person will do. First, the spiritual believer will restore, will want to restore the fallen individual, the one who has drifted into some type of transgression. The verb restore here is a Greek word that was a medical term that referred to setting a fractured bone. James Montgomery Boyce says, What is wrong in the life of the fallen Christian is to be set straight. It is not to be neglected or exposed openly. Who's to do this restoration? of this brother or sister. Who's Paul say here is to do this restoration? Christian brothers. Christian brothers? But who exactly? Mm 
He says there in verse 1, you who are spiritual. And what he's talking about there is those who have matured in Christ. Those who are mature. There's a lot of carnal Christians. And carnal Christians are wayward themselves. And Jesus said, why, do, why try to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log hanging out of your own? And perhaps what is also hinted at here is the fact that only mature believers have a genuine desire to see others walking in faithfulness to the Lord. And, and can so handle a sinning brother in such a way that it doesn't become a public spectacle. So he's saying here in the body of believers, those mature believers, when there's a fallen brother or sister, they need to go after that person. Operation restoration. Pointing out the sin, yes, working through the sin, but the ultimate goal is what? Restoration and repentance. The goal is not just punitive. The goal is to restore such a person to fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with the body of Christ. Now notice how the restoration is to be done. He says, in a spirit of gentleness. Now we saw that pop up, the word gentleness, in the fruit of the spirit passage that we just looked at, right? If you're walking in the fruit of the Spirit, and walking in the Spirit, you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Gentleness. So again, he's talking about mature believers who have the good of the individual in mind. They go to that person, they try to restore them to repentance and to the family of God, and they do so in a spirit of gentleness meekness, and humility. Because the mature believer also realizes that he is a fellow partaker in the fallen human race. He's only saved by the grace of God himself. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the mature believer understands that, right? But for the grace of God, there go I. He doesn't sit in an ivory tower thinking he's above temptation. What a shame that one pastor wrote. And I quote here, he says, If I should ever fall into some sin, I pray that I will not be dealt with by the self-righteous that sit in many pews. I pray that I should rather fall into the hands of the barkeepers, the gamblers, and the prostitutes. What a shame. That's not how we ought to be. That a fallen believer would, would think he would find more understanding among the lost out in the world than he would in the, in the church. Now, we're certainly not to be light on sin, but at the same time, we're not to have the attitude that we could never be guilty of sin. And so as we come alongside of fellow believers who are struggling with sin, 
Paul is saying here, you need to keep a watch on yourself. Because if you're not watchful of your own life, you might find out that somehow or another in this process of trying to restore a fallen brother or sister, you might end up somehow or another being tempted with the very same thing they're being tempted of. I think as we wrap up verse 1, it's, it's instructive for us to realize that we're not simply to take the attitude that some would like to take of let's just live and let live. Just live and let live. That's the attitude of, of, of some churches and some Christians. That's not biblical. But again, at the same time, pride and arrogance and an attitude that, oh, we can never do something like that, that's not proper either. Another way that we're to relate to one another is in how we bear one another's burdens. Because again, we live in a fallen world, and Jesus said in this world, you'll have tribulation. Most people are either in a trial, they're coming out of a trial, or they're about to go into another one, right? And we're not supposed to go at it alone. We're supposed to be here for one another. Write down 2 Corinthians 1. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how we serve a God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And one of the reasons why he comforts us is not only that we might be comforted, but he says that we might be able to turn around and comfort others as they go through their affliction with the same comfort that we ourselves have received from God. We're uniquely capable of helping people with burdens because we've been through some of those same burdens ourselves. And as a believer, you know how God brought you through that burden. You know how God led you, how he provided for you and directed your steps, and he brought you out of it. And you can turn around and offer some of that same help to a fellow brother or sister that God has helped you with. And again, that's what church life is to be about. Not only helping a, a wayward brother to be restored, but also helping a brother or sister just as they go through the natural burdens and trials and tribulations of life. That's another reason why we need each other. Let's not forget that even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane desired the disciples to pray with him. Now, obviously, they failed him. They were sleeping. But he wanted them to stay awake and pray with him, right? We need each other. If Jesus desired the fellowship and the prayers of his fellow disciples, we need each other. Jesus told us in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, to come to him with our burdens. But he's also given us one another in the church. You know, you could do a series on all the one another's in the Bible, right? How we're to pray for one another, encourage one another, 
bear the burdens of one another, comfort one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds. I think there's about 32 one another's in the Bible. And again, what's that show? That, that we're members of one body, we need each other. Christ is the head, we're members of Christ's body, and we're supposed to function together in community with one another. In your physical body, the strong members can help a weak member. You know, in your, in your own experience, if you have a bad leg, you might go out and get crutches, and then your arms help your legs in that case, right? Your, your good leg, even itself, receives more weight and more pressure. Just an illustration of how together we can help each other. When he says we fulfill the law of Christ, let's remember that the law of Christ supremely is love. And Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And the second commandment's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Verse 3, look at what he says here. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If somebody goes around thinking, I'm not going to help anybody, why should I help others? I don't need help. I deal with my own stuff. What's that? I have pride and arrogance, isn't it? And you know what? That person might find himself at some point in his own life battling something where he has to eat those words. It's self-deception to assume that we're going to go through life and never need the help of others. Now, the next two verses can be a little bit confusing at first. Let's read them again. When he says, let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with somebody else for each person will have to carry his own load. We need to understand that a different word is used for load or burden in verse 5 versus the same word that showed up in verse 2. In English, we just have the word burden or load. But in Greek, it's two entirely different words. In verse 2, it refers to burdens or trials that overwhelm people. And he's saying, in that case, we need to bear one another's burdens. But in verse 5, he's referring to the normal load that we all have to carry in life. It was sometimes used of a soldier's backpack how each soldier had his own backpack to carry. And so when it comes to our normal load that we carry in life, we need to examine ourselves in light of our responsibilities that we've been given. Are we being faithful? Are we carrying our load? Are we doing our part? Some who don't want to help others with their trials that are tremendously heavy 
may not even be carrying out their own responsibilities in the church in normal day-to-day -day life. You ever met anybody like that? They're not helping anybody else and they're not carrying their own load either. So before we judge somebody that's feeling overwhelmed or needing help, we need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are we even living up to the normal day-to-day -day responsibilities that God has given us in the body of Christ? Because we have a part to play in the body of Christ too. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Boy, we love to be Monday morning quarterbacks, don't we? If you're going to be a Monday morning quarterback, then you'd better be in the huddle on Sunday doing your part, out on the field playing, right? You know, there are so many ways we could apply this. For example, you may not like your Sunday school teacher's lesson this week, but did you pray for him or her ahead of time? Did you read your lesson? Did you study the verses? Did you yourself have a basic investment in that Sunday school class and that Sunday school lesson? If you didn't, then keep your mouth shut. <laughs> or volunteer to teach the next week, right? Amen. Sunday school teachers, what would you say? Amen. Amen. <laughs> some, some could say the same of a, of a pastor's message on Sunday. Did you, have, did you have preacher for lunch on Sunday? And I don't mean you invited him over either. Well, would you like to try next week's sermon? Or how about for a whole bunch of weeks? And you see the struggle a pastor has or the challenge. He's not like the evangelist that can just prepare a few good messages and, and keep tweaking them and travel around the country. A, pa a pastor addresses the same group of people uh, week after week, month after month, year after year. Not always as easy as you might think it is. Give it a try sometime. <laughs> or you may criticize somebody for, for being fired from an impossible job that they had with an impossible boss. <clears throat> and yet, even though you've made it where you work, you've been a slacker and you've not carried your own load there. And yet you criticize other workers who may be doing their work and yet haven't been as successful. So Paul's saying, you know, before you get too proud and boastful, you need, you need to examine yourself and see if you really have something to boast about. Have you carried out your responsibilities before the Lord? It's a needed word in church life, isn't it? Now, he closes out this section, verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. He closes this section out on helping people by talking about material things like the support of spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders don't give out bills for their services. As probably Phil and Sherry will tell you, with Matt, their son, you'll do a wedding for somebody or a funeral for somebody. And a lot of people come up and ask you, uh, what's the bill on this? 
What's your charge for this? You do a family for, a funeral for a family. What what what's your fee on this? And he's like, there's no fee. This this is my calling. This is what I do. The the church supports us to do this. Now, if somebody wants to give an honorary and well and good, but we don't send people bills and invoices. <laughs> Could couldn't you see a pastor on Sunday? Man, it's a Sunday he's delivered a barn brother. And he looks out and never says, man, you're going to get a big invoice this week on this message. <laughs> or maybe he preaches a lousy message. And somebody said, preacher, the bill better not be much this week. You want a refund. <laughs> you want a refund. <laughs> you need to pay us for this. Yeah. <laughs> but Paul's just making the principle here, if a spiritual leader teaches the word and the ones being taught, help support that one. It, it's a voluntary thing, but Paul says in the church, this is the right thing to do. So this whole section, again, he's talking about our relationships with one another, how we're to interact with one another and help one another. We're to be walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and if we are, we'll be doing things in the body that lifts up one another, views one another correctly, we're not, uh, we're not trying to put others' faults on display. We're not covering up their sin. We're trying to restore them in the proper spirit. We're doing all these things together to be a body of believers that if we were judged corporately, we're going to be judged individually one day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but if we were judged corporately, that God would say to a church, well done good and faithful servants. So he's talking here about how theology plays out in everyday life with our relationships. I heard somebody say one time, really hurt this. I don't care how I interact with people, what I think of them or what they think of me. As long as I'm right with God, Nobody else matters. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Seriously, that's not just a hypothetical. I mean, I've heard that before. Well, guess what? Other people do matter. If we're right with God, we're going to be right with one another in the body of Christ. Let me give you four lessons before we close tonight. Lesson number one. There's the need to view human life the way God views human life. Everybody has worth and dignity because they're created in the image of God. And that should erase human pride. As well as people depreciating themselves. Now I'm certainly not saying that everybody is saved. Everybody's not saved. Sometimes you'll hear people come along and say, oh, we're all God's children. No, we're not all God. We're, we're all God's creation. But only those who know Him through Christ are His children. But even the lost man is somebody created in the image of God. And they have value and dignity and worth. And we need to treat them that way. 
A second lesson, helping people to overcome sin in their lives is a necessary and great ministry if done in the right spirit. Hopefully we'll turn somebody from their waywardness and sin and we'll turn them back to the Lord. And the Lord will be with them and reward them one day for that rather than the Lord having to judge them because we wouldn't deal with them. You know, Paul said that to the Corinthians, right? If you judge yourselves, you wouldn't have to be judged by God. And the writer of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you know what? When we turn somebody from their sin and we do it in the right spirit and they get back on the right track, we have no idea of, of the burdens we might have spared them from. A third lesson. Life is full of trials and so we, we need to help others. And we need to allow others to help us. Boy, now that's the difficult one, isn't it? Allowing people to help us. It's a lot easier to help somebody else than to let people help you, right? And then a last lesson. Everybody has certain responsibilities in life and in the church to bear. When everybody bears their own load, the overall work sure is a lot easier and the ministry is all the more fruitful. It shouldn't be the 80-20 rule where 20% of the people are doing 80% of everything. It's not supposed to be that way. Bear your own load. Carry your own backpack. You're a soldier in the Lord's army. He's got a backpack for you to carry. Okay. Any comments before we close? Or anything to add? I think of Charles and John Wesley. Their theology. negates that, doesn't it? Yet, in Wesleyan theology, it's what they call a complete sanctification. That you might wake up this morning at 4 a.m. and boom, all of a sudden something comes over you and you're completely sanctified. And you won't sin anymore. It's not that you couldn't, but you just won't. I kind of want to talk to somebody's wife who claims to have reached complete sanctification. No. I don't, I don't think the Bible teaches that. It's, it's, a, it's a, a growth till we see Jesus. And you know, sometimes that sanctification, it's, it's two steps forward and four steps backwards. One step forward, five steps backwards. Ten steps forward, one step backwards. It kind of goes like that, doesn't it? Can we read the uh, Romans 7? Mm -hmm. See how Paul 
himself. He says, you know, I'm a sinner. Oh, yeah. I you know, I've got a perfect in me, you know. Yeah, the Apostle Paul, he's saying, the, the things I do are not the things I want to do. And the things I want to do, I don't end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says of himself. That's the Apostle Paul's struggle. And our struggle too, exactly. 